the author of Acts, and uh, he wrote this around 63 AD. Um, this is Paul's transition. It's the end of his third missionary journey, and he's the beginning of his journey to Rome. Paul is in Jerusalem, and these are, these are really the last days of the Jerusalem as, as he knows it. Um, there's only nine years until the Jewish revolt and the destruction of the, you know, shortly after that, the destruction of the temple. Um, the, the climate in Jerusalem is that the, uh, this is Paul's last visit to Jerusalem um, as, since his conversion. The Sanhedrin have their hands full with uh, uh, imposter after imposter drawing people away from the faith. Uh, the people have their hands full with the robbers and assassins as crime is just escalating in the region. And these uh, Sicarii, these assassins, have become bold enough to even uh, uh, murder people on the steps of the, um, the temple. Uh, the government is corrupt, and the Jews are becoming increasingly angry with them. And again, this, the Jewish revolt is just nine years away. So Paul's purpose since his conversion, um, I think, was summed up pretty well when Jesus was telling Ananias. Uh, Ananias was saying, you know, isn't Paul this guy that, you know, hunted us down? And uh, Jesus said, go, said the Lord. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul, as he was wrapping up his third missionary journey, made a comment about his trip into Jerusalem. He says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me here, I only know that in town after town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and affliction await me. Uh, the main themes of uh, this passage that, that I, I drew out was that um, Paul has a love for the Jews. He desperately wants to spend eternity with the Jewish people that he knows and loves uh, from Jerusalem. Um, uh, we realize Paul really isn't in control here. In fact, uh, I think that's why they refer to it as Paul's journey to Rome and not Paul's missionary journey, fourth missionary journey. And we're going to learn uh, how Paul really suffers in this passage. Let's open up our Bibles. We'll start with uh, Acts 21. I'm going to read 35 through 40. I'm reading from the Berean Study Bible. When Paul reached the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because the violence of the mob. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, Away with him! As they were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who incited a rebellion some time ago and led 4,000 members of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul answered, I'm a, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Now I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Having received permission, Paul stood on the steps, motioned to the crowd. A great hush came over the crowd, and he addressed them in Hebrew. So this is this is an amazing scene. I mean, this is what we're opening up with. It's kind of like the, the beginning of a movie trailer. I, I wish, you know, I would watch this movie if, if there was a riotous mob being sorted by the military from a nearby outpost. Um, there's intrigue of an international villainous leader of assassins. And this hero from the prominent city commands the attention of the very mob that's trying to kill him. There's some context here that, that I want to explain. Uh, uh, who is this mob? Um, Paul... While participating in a period of purification in the temple, uh, some Jews from Asia recognized him. 
Uh, They incited the crowd to seize Paul. They threw him out of the temple into the street, and they started to beat him. The barracks, I got to admit, I was squirreled. I I read so much about Fort Antonia. I just got, I'm a guy, I got sucked into this whole soldier thing. Um, Fort Antonia overlooks the temple from the northwest corner. Uh, It's probably not manned by a whole legion, but uh, just a cohort of five to 600 men. And uh, it's close enough that the soldiers were able to arrive in time to keep Paul from being killed by this by this mob. Who is this commander? Uh, his name is Claudius Lysias. He's a tribune of a cohort of about 500 men. And he assumed Paul might be an insurrectionist, perhaps this Egyptian that had eluded capture uh, previously. And, and who is this Egyptian? Uh, Josephus gives us an account of an Egyptian uh, false prophet that convinced a, a bunch of people to to follow him because he claimed that uh, at the command of his voice, he could make the walls of Jerusalem fall. So a lot of people believed in this guy. He, he must have been very charismatic. They followed him into the wilderness to the Mount of Olives. Felix, the governor, got wind of this. He sent soldiers and killed most of them, captured a lot of them, but the Egyptian escaped. So that's why the commander was thinking, you know, is this that guy that recently is still outstanding? And the extraordinary city of Tarsus a lot of things about Tarsus. I'll talk a little bit about more later. But Paul's just trying to make it clear he's, he's not the Egyptian. He's from a very educated and prosperous city uh, that is known for um, its uh, Jewish history. So let's look again at uh, Acts. We're going to go to chapter 22. I'm just going to read 1 through 5. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. When they heard him speak to them in Hebrew, they became even more silent. Then Paul declared, I'm a Jew born of Tarsus in Cilicia, but raised in this city. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel in strict conformity to the law of our fathers. I am just as zealous for God as any of you here today. I persecuted the way, even to the death, detaining both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and the whole council can testify about me, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus, And I was on my way to apprehend these people and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. I got a picture here that just kind of shows um, Jerusalem there at the bottom right and Tarsus up there in the middle of Cilicia, just to give you an idea. This is the region we're talking about today. Um, Paul is getting up there to declare his Jewish credentials. He wants you to know where he came from, that he knows what they're thinking, and he hasn't forgotten. If Paul had addressed them in Greek, the crowd would not have hushed. The fact that he spoke to them in the Aramaic, that's why they they listened to what he had to say. Uh, Roughly 100 years earlier, Julius Caesar favored the Jews in Tarsus so much, so for supporting him during the civil war against, uh, um, what was his name, Pompey. uh, Julius Caesar appreciated that so much that he granted them religious freedom, uh, uh, freedom to practice their religion, and that extended to all the Jews in the region. Who's Gamaliel? Uh, He's a very respected teacher. He's mentioned also in Acts chapter 5 when he counsels the Sanhedrin against killing Peter and the other apostles. Um, It's interesting what he says uh, in verses 38 and 39. So in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or endeavor is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. So I think uh, we can all agree that Gamaliel had a, a pretty solid, maybe unbiased even, wisdom about what's going on. 
And in the Talmud, he's mentioned uh, in a quote when they say, when Rabban Gamaliel, Gamaliel, the elder, died, regard for the Torah ceased and purity and piety died. So he had very high regard by the Jewish people back in the day. And this was the guy that Paul learned from. It wasn't just a, a very zealous, you know, uh, hard-hearted Jew, but uh, Gamaliel, who had wisdom and, and love in his heart. Uh, Paul claims also that he's zealous for God, just as anyone here today. And he persecuted Christians even to the death. So he is cementing this idea that, hey, uh, you know I know what I'm talking about. Let's look at 22, 6 through 16. About noon, as I was approaching Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they could not understand the voice of the one speaking to me. Then I asked, what should I do, Lord? Get up and go to Damascus, he told me. There you will be told all that you have been appointed to do. Because the brilliance of the light had blinded me, my companions left me, led me by the hand into Damascus. There, a man named Ananias, a devout observer of the law, who was highly regarded by all the Jews living there, came and stood beside me. Brother Saul, he said, receive your sight. And at that moment, I could see him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear his voice. You will be his witness to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now you are now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So Paul, then uh, the second part of his defense is that, um, so this is my new information. This is, this is something else that I've learned. And uh, quite frankly, this is a, an appointment that uh, has been given me by uh, Jesus the Christ. Paul was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. Um, Jesus speaks to him from a heavenly light and asks, why do you persecute me? Jesus tells him to go to Damascus. Paul is blinded by the heavenly light. Uh, Ananias told Paul his sight was restored. Ananias then tells Paul, you now have one job, go and do. So Paul is baptized. Paul does fail to mention that uh, he went out right away and started preaching to the people in Damascus, and uh, they didn't quite like what he said, and they wanted to kill him right there from the start. So he had to flee. Uh, but where did he go? right back to Jerusalem. He wanted to share the good news with those closest to him. I can relate to uh, my own conversion when uh, I I accepted Christ. I I was so excited. I was so full. And I wanted to tell everybody. Um, And that wasn't going so well. Kind of like Paul in Damascus. But I was undeterred. I wanted to tell this. My friends and family needed to know this. So I reached out to them. Uh, Not much more success. Um, I'm not sure if you had a similar experience, but I hope you had more success than I did. Then Paul, uh, let's read Acts 22, 17 through 22. Later, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem quickly because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I answered, they know very well that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of your witness Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Then he said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now that's what Paul said. I think this is what the Jews heard. Let's recap this. Paul saw a vision of Jesus, the false Messiah that was causing uh, so much trouble that they crucified him. Uh, Jesus told Paul, leave them now. They will not listen to you. And Paul's response was, but I was the best Pharisee ever. Jesus said, I will send you far away from them to the Gentiles. And they lose their minds. Let's look at the next section here. The crowd listened to Paul until he made this statement. Then they lifted up their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks. He directed that Paul be flogged and interrogated to determine the reason for this outcry against him. But as they stretched him out to strap him down, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen without trial? On hearing this, the centurion went and reported it to the commander. What are you going to do? He said, This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked him, Tell me you're a Roman citizen. Yes, he, he answered. I paid a high price for my citizenship, said the commander. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Then those who were about to interrogate Paul stepped back, and the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put a Roman citizen in chains. The next day, the commander, wanting to learn the real reason Paul was accused by the Jews, released him and ordered the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul down and had him stand before them. So Paul is removed from the crowd once again. The commander still does not know who this man is, or why he has this power to incite a crowd uh, wherever he goes. Uh, As with many interrogators before him, Paul will be flogged while they ascertain his plans. Paul then reveals he's a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, uh, he is by law not to be punished without due process. At the very least, he's spared a scourging. At most, he may just have ensured his passage to Rome. And Lysias still wants answers, so he calls the Sanhedrin together. Look at chapter 23. So Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. Paul looks directly at the Sanhedrin and says, Brothers, I have conducted myself before God in all good conscience to this day. At this point, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near to Paul to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit here to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. But those standing nearby said, how dare you insult the high priest of God? Brothers, Paul replied, I was not aware that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of the people. Now, Paul claims to have a clear conscience before God to this day. Is he including the time that he was a Pharisee? Paul always acted in what he perceived to be God's intentions for him. But after his conversion, 
he's he's leaning on that understanding of forgiveness and his new divine appointment. Why does Ananias call for Paul to be struck on the mouth? Ananias sees Paul as a heretic and a blasphemer, an imposter, and his opening seems irreverent and boastful, and it's really angered Ananias. But, but why does call why does Paul call Ananias a whitewashed wall? My understanding is that was a, a common characterization of someone that you were angry at or didn't like because uh, because of their uh, their their high place in society, their position, or their wealth. They they seemed white on the outside, but um, in Jerusalem they would paint the walls of tombs white on the outside. So you're being he is comparing Ananias to a tomb that is looks nice on the outside but dead on the inside. Why does Paul say I was not aware that he was the high priest? I mean, it seems like he's he's there, maybe staring right at him. Um, there's several several uh, commentaries that talk about this. Some speculate that Paul may have had poor eyesight, uh, maybe. But you know, God did just take the scales off his eyes, you know, not too long ago. So he should be he should have some pretty good eyes at that point. But I know that's a, a common thing, and there may be other evidences of that in Scripture. Um, this may have been Paul's way of saying that. Ananias's behavior did not represent that of a high priest. He may have just been trying to say, hey, he's not acting like one. Um, but I might contend that Paul was addressing the group when he was talking, and the command to strike him on the mouth came out so fast and from somewhere in the group, he probably didn't see who said it, uh, was looking to see who was going to strike him on the mouth and said. So uh, that's, that's my, that's my, that's, I'm going to go with that one. And, and who is this Ananias? He's not the same Ananias from back in Damascus. Um, he was appointed chief priest by Herod of Chalcis in 46 AD, and he officiated over the Sanhedrin until 58 AD, which is about halfway through our story today. Let's look at Acts 23, 6 through 10. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. It is because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. As soon as he had said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is neither a resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. A great clamor arose, and some scribes from the party of the Pharisees got up and contented sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute grew so violent that the commander was afraid they would tear Paul to pieces. He ordered the soldiers to go down and remove him by force and bring him into the barracks. Paul knows, as as I think we all do, that this meeting is pointless. Uh, He also knows that while the Sanhedrin all agree that Christianity, i.e. Paul, is a significant threat to Judaism, Sadducees and Pharisees do not agree in spiritual things like angels and resurrection. So in what a lot of people say were, was a brilliant a moment of brilliance for Paul, um, he lights a match and says that this is all really about the resurrection of the dead, and the Sanhedrin comes unglued. Some of the Pharisees even side with Paul, uh, maybe giving him some hope. But uh, for the third time, uh, the commander has to pull Paul from a crowd um, to keep him from being harmed. Getting a reputation. Let's look at Acts 23.11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify me about me in Rome. 
Why was Paul discouraged? Probably think of six things right off the bat, right? Um, is he, does he think he's not going to Rome? He knows he's going to Rome. He knew that before Jesus said that. Jesus was just reminding him, probably because of what's coming up next. Um, is he physically hurt? Probably. Um, he's around 50 years old at this point. He's been rolled by this mob three times now. Could it be his love for the lost people of Jerusalem and the rejection of the testimony? He loves the kind-hearted people of this city. He's thinking of his old co-workers, the Pharisees, who have a mind of spiritual things like him. Uh, even the Sadducees with their hard, hardened hearts, he has the love of Jesus for them as well. He's, he's probably upset because his Christian brothers are still holding on to the ways of Moses, as we learned from Jonathan last week. He desperately wants them to understand this is the new covenant mentioned in Jeremiah 31 and summarized in Hebrews 7. He wants them to understand the law has a new place. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19, So the former commandment is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Could this be the suffering that Jesus told Ananias about? All right, let's look at uh, 12 through 15. When daylight came, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 of them were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priest and elders and said, we have bound ourselves with a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him down to you on the pretext of examining his case more carefully. We are ready to kill him on the way. Over 40 men got together and said, this guy's got to go. And then they went to the Sanhedrin and said, hey, this guy's got to go. It wasn't the other way around. He's not just upsetting the the church leadership here. Their plan involves um, asking the commander to bring Paul to the Sanhedrin offices for further examination. Um, They're not playing around. They are anticipating soldiers to come along with Paul and are willing to take them out as well. But here we learn in verses 16 through 24 that when the son of Paul's sister heard about the plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. But the centurion took him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner sent and asked me to bring you this young man. He has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what do you need to tell me? He answered, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul to the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of acquiring more information about him. Do not let them persuade you, because more than 40 men are waiting to ambush him. They have bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, awaiting your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, Do not tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and said, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea in the third hour of the night. Provide mounts for Paul to take him safely to Governor Felix. So here we learn Paul has family in Jerusalem. There's evidence. Uh, he has at least a sister. Uh, she probably is married, and they have a son. 
His nephew learns of this plot and goes to warn Paul and the Romans, and the commander warns the young man not to tell anyone. Why is that? Two reasons, really. This young man's in danger if anybody finds out that he went and told the Romans. Um, and two, he wants to uh, transport Paul that night unopposed. This is an actual picture of the record of the letter that, that uh, Lysias wrote to Felix. And so let's look at 25 through 30. And he wrote the following letter. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him when I came with my troops to rescue him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. And since I wanted to understand their charges against him, I brought him down to the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation involved questions about their own law, but there was no charge worthy of death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also instructed his accusers to present their case against him before you. So Lysias is in a tough spot here. Uh, He has a Roman citizen in protective custody. Uh, Paul has not committed any crimes against Rome. Uh, There's over 40 men close by who made a vow not to eat or drink until they've killed Paul. Uh, it is in their best interest to do this within the next few days, right? Or they're going to you know, not have the strength to do it. Uh, the assassins intend to engage the Roman soldiers if necessary. And Lysias does not need that kind of attention with Felix or Rome. So he appeals to Felix for help with the matter, and he sends Paul to Caesarea. This is a map. Um, I liked this particular one. It showed how the terrain changes as, as they get to Antipatris. Um, let me go ahead and read Acts 23, 31 through 35. So the soldiers followed their orders and brought Paul by night to Antipatris. The next day they returned to the barracks and let the horsemen go on with him. When the horsemen arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul to him. The governor read the letter and asked, what province Paul was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers arrive. And he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's praetorium. Why did Lysias send so many men? He sent most of his cohort, it looks like. He knew uh, knew that these people were angry. And he's already seen three mobs try to take him out. Um, He's probably going to incite anyone he sees along the way. Why do these foot soldiers return? As you can see in the map, uh, that first half of the leg to Antipatris uh, is prime area for an ambush, uh, but it really opens up towards the end. Um, I believe that becomes a little more uh, Gentile, less Jewish as he reaches uh, Caesarea. So they could travel faster with the horses, so they sent the footmen back uh, because the danger was less. And who is Felix? This is his full name is Marcus Antonius Felix. He is the procreate, the governor of Judea and surrounding areas from 52 to 60 AD. Chapter 24. I'm going to read 24, 1 through 9. Five days later, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus who presented to the governor their case against Paul. When Paul had been called in, Tertullus opened the prosecution. Because of you, we have enjoyed a lasting peace, and your foresight has brought improvements to this nation. 
In every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with all gratitude. But in order not to burden you any further, I beg your indulgence to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a pestilence, stirring up dissension among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all our charges against him. The Jews concurred, asserting that these charges were true. Uh, Who is Felix? Well, Felix, uh, it says uh, a little later here, he's well informed about the way. He he knows a bit about the theological differences between uh, these two groups. Um, According to Josephus, the country was again filled with robbers and imposters who deluded the multitude. Um, Felix did capture and put to death many of them every day. Uh, The the Sicarii, the assassins, uh, were just as hateful towards the Roman soldiers as they were against their victims. Tertullus, um, he was brought in by Ananias because he was an attorney. He knew how to speak in a Roman court, and they felt like he would have uh, the best chance of convincing Felix that uh, Paul had something uh, worthy of charging him against. Um, He charges Paul with being a pestilence, stirring up dissension. Um, He's the ringleader of the Nazarenes. I want a t-shirt that says, um, or just sect of the Nazarenes. I'm not the ringleader. And uh, they charged that he attempted to desecrate the temple, which seems to be the most heinous thing they can come up with at this point. All right, Acts 24:10 through 13. When the governor motioned for Paul to speak, he began his response. Knowing that you have been a judge over this nation for many years, I gladly make my defense. You can verify for yourself that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Yet my accusers did not find me debating with anyone in the temple or riling up a crowd in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove to you any of their charges against me. Paul knows a thing or two about persecuting Christians. Uh, He was respectful but brief to Governor Felix. Uh, He didn't use flattery and and there really was no pressure on him. Uh, The burden of proof was on Tertullus and the Sanhedrin. Uh, He claims he was there for 12 days with no riots, no mobs, no dissension, and they really have no proof of these charges, so he's not worried at all. Look at 14 through 16. I do confess to you, however, that I worship the God of our fathers according to the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is laid down by the law and written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God that they themselves cherish, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In this hope, I strive always to maintain a clear conscience before God and man. So Paul's confession about the way, um, he, he talks about, say, you know, he, he's worshiping the same God that they are. Um, he recognizes the same law that, of the Jewish people uh, and that he has that same hope in the resurrection. There's room for the way to be a continuation of the law and the prophets through the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Paul's letter uh, to the Hebrews, uh, he draws a lot of Old Testament prophetic evidence of the coming Messiah and how Jesus will fulfill those prophecies. 
He preached Christ. In Matthew Henry's commentary, um, I, liked, I liked what he said here. He, Paul, preached Christ, the end of the law for righteousness and repentance and faith in which we are to make great use of the law. Seventeen through twenty-one. After several years, then I returned to Jerusalem to bring alms to my people and to present offerings. At the time they found me in the temple, I was ceremonially clean and not inciting a crowd or an uproar. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to appear here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Otherwise, let these men state for themselves any crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin unless it was this one thing I called out as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. But why is Paul bringing alms to the people? Uh, he collected these gifts from the Gentile believers, the, uh, the Christian believers along the way of his third uh, missionary journey, and he's bringing those to the believers in Jerusalem. Paul claims he was ceremoniously clean when they grabbed him in the temple. And who were these Jews from the province of Asia? Uh, likely they were from Ephesus, where Paul recently spoke boldly in the synagogues, and of course they tried to kill him. What is this legal significance of these Jews from Asia? Well, if there were any charges against him, Paul said, it would be from those guys, and they're really they're not here to do it. So it's, a, it's their loss. And what is the one reason Paul says again he is on trial? The resurrection of the dead. All right, let's wrap up the reading of our passage today. Then Felix, who was well informed about the way, adjourned the hearing and said, When Lysias the commander comes, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to allow him some freedom and permit his friends to minister to his needs. After several days, Felix returned with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul expounded on righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix became frightened and said, You may go for now. When I find the time, I will call for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for Paul frequently and talked with him. After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So why did Felix adjourn this hearing? He understood this to be an ideological conflict and not a capital offense. He felt no compulsion to hand over a Roman citizen over to the Jews. Uh, given to bribes, he was probably intrigued to know more about these alms that Paul mentions. And he withheld the verdict for more than two years. He frequently put Paul in a position over those two years to offer a bribe, but Paul didn't take it. And during this two years, Ananias, the high priest, was replaced by Jonathan. So, and again, who is Felix? A little more information about him. Felix was not righteous or self-controlled, and Paul makes the coming judgment sound legitimate. Why was, why was he afraid? 
Um, during Paul's two years of captivity, Ananias the high priest was replaced by Jonathan. Sorry, I got my notes a little Jonathan criticized Felix incessantly and warned that Caesar would receive report of his abuse of his power over the Jewish people. And Felix conspired with Sicari to murder Jonathan, the high priest. Because the murder went unpunished, the Sicari were emboldened to commit murder even within the temple, and violent crime was rampant. This is what uh, Josephus recounts. But why would uh, Felix want to do the Jews a favor? I think the last question here of the of the passage. Um, so Nero finally calls uh, for Felix to answer for his mishandling of a conflict between the Jews and the Syrians. And Felix leaves Paul in custody when he is replaced by Festus uh, as one last chance to please the Jews who are not happy with him. Paul knew why the Jews would not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he traveled, he went straight to the synagogues and preached the way. And in each town, they drove him into the streets. And when he preached in the streets, they tried to kill him. For thousands of miles and many years, the gospel drove him from city to city. You might ask, was he doing it right? What was it about Paul's gospel that drove all men to such rage? Was it the bad news that we are all born sinners, destined for hell, in need of redemption? No. Was it more bad news? We cannot do enough good things to deserve that forgiveness. Was it the good news? Jesus came to provide a way. Jesus took that punishment of the sin of the world to the cross. He paid our sin debt in his death. No, that's not it. It was the best news of all, the resurrection. It's the difference between Jesus being a martyr and Jesus being a savior. It's the scandal of the cross, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Without it, Jesus is just a man like you and me. No man has the power to forgive. No martyr has the power to overcome your pride. Pride that keeps you in bondage to sin. This resurrection is the key that unlocks Jesus' victory over death. And without it, the Bible is just another book. If you have this saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, share it. Like Paul, you now have one job. Tell people about Jesus, the whole story. You'll know if you're doing it right. Thank you.